Welcome to the Spartan Up Podcast. Today we're sharing another recording from one of our daily Spartan Up Podcast Zoom chats. This one is with Kwame Christian, the host of Negotiate Anything and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Kwame explains that anytime you're talking to someone and someone wants something, that's a negotiation. He has some really helpful tips for managing some of the difficult negotiations that might be happening in your home right now and in your career. I hope you'll subscribe on YouTube or whatever podcast app you're using so that you'll get notifications of all of our shows. Our weekly interview show hosted by Joe DeSena, founder and CEO of Spartan. Our series of mini tips with psychologist and Spartan's chief mind doc, Dr. Lara Pence. Our Zoom chat podcast episodes like this one. Our new Spartan combat series and all kinds of other information to help you be resilient in mind, body and spirit. This episode of Spartan Up is brought to you by Wine for Runners, the makers of the new official Spartan brand wine. Visit wineforrunners.com slash Spartan. That's wine, the number four, runners.com slash Spartan. So welcome back to the Spartan Up Zoom Hour. And uh, the way this came about, we've got it. First of all, we've got a great guest today, Kwame Christian. I'm going to introduce in just a moment. But I want to let people know how this happened, how this came about. So when Joe realized that we were going to be um, upside down for a while, that everyone's going to be out of the normal schedule, he said, people are going to be missing communities. They, uh, they're, they're away from their gyms, they're away from their races, they're away from, you know, uh, their work, their place of worship, all the places they normally go to be with inspiring uplifting people. How can we create that? So he reached out to Marion, director of our, our producer of our podcast, uh, the Spartan Up podcast. And Marion re- reached out to me, Johnny, one of the hosts, and said, hey, what if we took an hour and went back to our podcast community and got these incredible people to come together and share their ideas and, um, and experiences what they're going through right now in a more interactive forum. And, uh, and I'm really, really excited about this. So Kwame, um, Kwame Christian is the uh, director of the American Negotiation Institute. Also a best-selling author of No One Wants to Play With Me, Finding Confidence in Conflict. Did I get that right? Nobody will play with me, but you That's have right, to <laughs> So tell us about the path that brought you to where you are, and then we'll dive right into um, what's going on now. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Johnny. Um, so yeah, I, I am a lawyer by trade, but my passion is all about teaching people how to negotiate and resolve conflicts effectively. And I came to this because my true academic love is psychology. My undergrad degree is in psychology. I wanted to be a therapist for the longest time. And the only reason I went to to law school and got my master's in public policy was because I said, well, as a therapist, I can work with one person one-on-one, but then if if I'm able to become a politician, I could help more people. I was young at the time, Johnny. (laughs) <laughs> that was the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so as I started to go through law school, I, I became more and more disenchanted. So I said to myself, oh my gosh, I'm going to have this degree and not know what to do. Um, but negotiation was the first time I saw uh, psychology used for a business purpose or a legal purpose. I, that's what really drew me to that. And in my book and the TED Talk, I talk about my own struggles in having having difficult conversations. I was I'm a recovering people pleaser, and I was not very good at it. <laughs> and um, I learned that through my background in psychology, I can overcome that fear by treating it like a phobia. And then through the skills of negotiation and conflict resolution, I could actually have the the tools that I need to to get what I need and deserve without damaging the relationship. And so putting those two things together is how I came to this point because I want to help as many people as I can. And I find, I feel as though this is one of the best ways that I can do that. That's awesome. And, and I think so many people have um, a preconceived idea of what negotiation means to them. And they see it as an adversarial uh, zero sum game, you know, that negotiation is I win, you lose. 
is that how you came to negotiation in the first place? And, and what's your experience of it now? Definitely not. And this is the coolest thing. Um, anytime you're talking to somebody and somebody wants something, that's a negotiation. That's the operational definition that we work with. And I think one of the biggest reasons why people struggle in negotiation is that they have a low level of negotiation awareness. They don't know when negotiations begin. So imagine, think about this. Imagine if you were the, the best athlete in the world, endurance athlete, um, you have all these cool ninja skills and you say, you know what, I'm going to do a Spartan race. But you had this one one weakness and you just never knew when the, the race started and it doesn't yep. matter then you, you can't even use the skills and it's the same with negotiation you have to learn how to recognize that these everyday interactions that we're having are negotiations and then when you recognize that then it's a trigger for you to use the skills so i like to think about it as a habit a habit of engagement in these difficult conversations you want to recognize it you have the cue then you have the behavior then you have the reward and the reward is putting yourself in a position to get what you want and deserve out of life and when you describe it as skills, um, are there people who are born negotiators or do most people who uh, come, come to it learn it along the way? And how do they learn that? Yeah, there are going to be people that are more inclined to engage. I'll say it that way. If you think about the, the extroverted personality type, um, those are people who are more willing to speak, speak up. And another thing that people often miss with extroverts is that they're also very assertive. They don't have any problems speaking up and advocating for what they want. Um, so I guess in that sense, there are people that are more willing to engage However, they're not born with specific skills. Skills take time to develop. And so, you know, what I've found is that people who are more on the introverted side, I think that's a better foundation for high level negotiations because when I negotiate, my goal is to keep the breakdown of conversation 70-30, where the other side is speaking 70% of the time and I'm speaking only 30% of the time. It's hard for an extrovert to keep that type of ratio. And so if you're able, as somebody who is not, typically um, geared towards engaging, if you're able to overcome that fear and have the conversation, I feel like that is a really strong framework to build those foundational skills on top of. So it, it takes some time and it takes um, resources in the, in the form of just having access to free resources. And my, my podcast, Negotiate Anything, is, is one resource. The uh, um, Ask With Confidence podcast, that's another podcast we have that's geared towards um, women in difficult conversations and negotiations because gender dynamics are real. And so those are some free ways that you can continue to build these skills so you can and perform better when the time is right. It's funny, as an extrovert, I resemble your comment about, uh, <laughs> about it, it's harder. Because I, I agree, you know, for an introvert who is inherently a listener, who's inherently usually a little bit more empathetic and things like that, they just need to, to get out of the, the shyness, perhaps, so that they may come along with that. Whereas that's extrovert too, you know, we, we find ourselves very talkative and engaging everything else. We'll quite often talk right past the opportunity to actually negotiate. And I think we're doing a great job of it. So, so Marion um, just uh, posed a question that, I, that I'll, I'll, I'll post to you, and it was, um, it was about, you said, recognizing that you're in a negotiation. So that's, I, I love that analogy. So explore that a bit. So how do you know that, okay, now I'm in a negotiation? Like, what are usually the, 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 the signals, the cues? Yeah. First signal is there's a conversation. <laughs> yeah, and, and so um, I guess it, to use some lawyer terms, let's call this a rebuttable presumption. So in my mind, every interaction is a negotiation unless there's something that tells me it's not. 
So I think we need to flip the assumption that the, and, and focus on the reality that the majority of our interactions are going to be uh, under this broad umbrella of negotiation, negotiations, right? That's the first thing. And then you have to figure out then what is it that the person wants? What do I want out of this conversation? What do they want out of the conversation? How can I help to solve their problems? How can I have a conversation with them and recruit them to help me solve my problems? And then that's how the negotiation begins. Which, as you said earlier, is very different than the zero-sum game. You know, that, uh, that, that I have to, you have to lose for me to win. So, so how do people learn to shift from that? You know, that, that sort of inherent competitive mindset that we think of with negotiation to a more collaborative approach. Yeah, so negotiation in the vast majority of cases are not a zero-sum game. They're not sports. So we can't both win um, in, in sports. And if that happens, usually the crowd is pretty disappointed. <laughs> Nobody comes to see ties, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so we have to avoid that mentality because if we really sit down and do an analysis of what it is that we want and need out of the conversation, then it becomes clear that I can still get what I want in most circumstances and the other person can get what they want out of the circumstance. And actually, you know, there's probably a higher likelihood of me getting what I want if I'm proactive about helping them get what they want out of the process too. And so you think about your friends, the friends that you trust and you like the most, they're not the ones who are not generous. It's like, yeah, man, I love hanging out with Johnny. He never picks up the tab. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, generosity is is one of the the most powerful negotiation techniques, and and you you're generous not just because it it serves a purpose, but you you want to pour into other people in general, right? Just in terms of building relationships. But then when you think about it strategically, it it serves an important purpose too. I think Adam Grant did a great job of exploring this in his book Givers and Takers, where he talked about people who had a more generous approach to their to the way that they navigated their careers and their lives are the ones who in the end ended up with more. And so I think the same thing applies in negotiations as well. So that, that seems sort of almost counterintuitive. I don't mean that I disagree, I agree completely, but um, Marion described it in, in a note, she just said unrecognized skill. Like, you know, that would usually be an unrecognized skill. The idea that being generous is gonna actually help you to get what you want as well. What would be other things like that that, that maybe people don't recognize as an important skill in negotiation? I think a big one is listening. Like you touched on this earlier, listening is critical. And so just in terms, again, in terms of relationship building, you want to spend time with people who listen to the things that you say. That's the first thing. And so when people like you more, they're more willing to give you what you want. That's, that's an important thing. But also, let's say you're a super competitive person and you say, hey, Kwame, I like all this, this fluffy stuff, that's cute, but no, I want to get what I want out of these negotiations. Well, you still need to listen to people because yeah. you don't know how to persuade somebody unless you hear what, they, what they're struggling with. I think about persuasion in terms of a key. And if you ask somebody what the key to persuasion is, they'll give it to you. A lot of times what people do is they just say, I'm going to advocate for my case. I'm going to say X, Y, Z and, and, and persuade them. And that's like going to a, a house that, ha that's, that has a door that's locked and there's a bucket of keys. And you say, my strategy is to just try every single key <laughs> until it works. If you ask questions and listen, they'll describe the key. Yeah, it's silver. It's about this big. Oh, is this the key? Let me try that one. Oh, it worked because you listened to what they told you. And persuasion becomes a lot simpler when you take the time to listen effectively. 
and, and tapping into your psychology as well, the, the, the listening and the getting them to talk to you, how, how do you build that kind of rapport? Like when, when you, you're with somebody and maybe they're initially not looking at it as, I want to give Kwame what he wants. You know what I mean? Right. They, they, may, they may be thinking the negotiation started on a different foot than, than, than you're planning for it to. How would you break down that lack of trust and, uh, and build up that rapport? So let's go back to what we talked about with generosity. And so the, the word that we would typically use in persuasive circles in the, in the science of persuasion is reciprocity. And so when it comes to reciprocity, it creates a feeling of psychological debt. If I give you something, Johnny, you feel more obligated to give me something in return. That's just how we are, we're made cognitively. That's how our brains are structured. Now, bringing it back to what you said, um, when it comes to listening, reciprocity operates in the same way. When it comes to trust, reciprocity works in the same way too. And so if I want somebody to hear me, I need to take the time to listen to them first. And so I want to give them the space to, to talk, to share their feelings. I'm going to summarize to prove to them that I'm actually listening and not just trying to counter what they're saying. And then after I take the time to listen, they're a lot more receptive to what it is that I have to say. And so again, reciprocity, it's so simple but so powerful because then when you have the, the sharing of information, that free flow of information that creates trust, hey, Kwame took the time to listen to me. When sometimes some other people in this same really tough, tense situation won't take that time to listen. They'll just try to force their way upon me. And so I appreciate that. He's different. And so now I'm going to be more likely to take the time to listen to him too. And so that's how you build the trust and make it more likely for them to empathize and listen uh, the way that you want them to in order to be more effective. So I'm, I'm just picturing the people who are on the call and the different backgrounds are coming from, you know, some in business, some are, are trainers, some are parents, spouses. Um, when you talk about that everything's a negotiation, so, so I was a realtor for a lot of years and I, I understood that when I was sitting down with somebody, even if I was, um, you know, just selling them on my services, there was still a negotiation at the end in terms of why you should this with me instead of someone else, the commission, things like that. But um, I think that, you know, people don't necessarily see um, an athlete-coach relationship as a negotiation. They don't see a parent-child negotiation. Well, they, they do when it comes after the cookies. But, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but how, how can you frame that so that people can understand that, that really everything they're doing is a negotiation? Yes, this is great. I'm getting excited because this is exactly what I want to, to people to know. And that's why the show is called Negotiate Anything. So Jim Tressel, uh, former coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes, was on the show before today um, because a lot of people are struggling with having difficult conversations with loved ones under quarantine, just in a lockdown. It's like, hey, can I get some space? No, legally you can't. <laughs> it's a tough situation. So one of my friends who's a relationship therapist came on the show and we're talking about strategies there. And so I think it's really important to recognize that the problems that we're facing can be solved with negotiation. Negotiation is one of the most powerful tools we have at our disposal. And so if you think about an everyday interaction, like one with, um, with your spouse, for instance, like it's me, my wife and my four-year-old at home. Um, Whitney's a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm trying to build the business. And Kai is trying to get attention <laughs> the whole time. And so negotiations that I'm going to, a negotiation I'm going to have with my wife is first of all, let's talk, well, let's share the schedule. I'm going to disclose my information. Here's my schedule. You show me your schedule. Who's going to take the lead at what time? 
who's going to take care of Kai in the morning versus who's going to take care of him in the evening? Who's going to cook? Who's going to clean? Um, those things need to be negotiated. And you might not want to use that word, but the fact is it's the correct word <laughs> to use yeah. because otherwise what we're going to have is a situation where we have unarticulated expectations that lead to disappointment. Because if I have an expectation that I am going to take care of Kai in the morning because I'm a morning person and Whitney takes care of Kai in the evening and then that doesn't happen, now I'm upset with Whitney. But Whitney could have a legitimate expectation that, hey, I'm a doctor, my job is more important than yours, especially now. Sure. So you take care of Kai the whole day while I try to save the world. That's a fair expectation too. And I won't know what that is until I have that conversation. And so when it comes to the, the difficult conversations that we're having, the negotiations, the negotiation for expectations is going to be one of the most important ones we can have. And the, the single greatest cause of the breakdown of relationships isn't communication, isn't trust, it's the violation of expectations. And unless we bring those expectations to the surface, then we're going to struggle in our everyday relationships. And so as, for you as a realtor, uh, when, you were being a, when you were a real estate agent, if you did a great job for your clients, but they had a different expectation for how many times you're going to check in with them during the yeah. week, then they're going to be disappointed with your performance, even though you did a good job. So I love the way you express that. And I just want to make sure I got it right and, uh, and, and put it back out there for people who might be getting their pencils out right now. And that was unarticulated expectations lead to disappointment. Exactly. Was that, was that, is that what you said? I love that. So unarticulated expectations lead to disappointment. So how would you initiate that conversation? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even drop any pretense that I'm pretending that I'm asking this um, uh, objectively. <laughs> help me. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> So, so let's suppose Andrew were coming home in an hour and I wanted to be a lot more um, uh, empowering to her when I bring that conversation up. You know what I mean? So, so it's not that, uh, that I'm sneaking a negotiation in there, but how, how would you start that conversation about expectations and then making sure you both understand where each other are coming from? Yeah, one of the best ways to do it, especially if you don't want to turn your relationship into a transactional type of situation, yeah. you want to explicitly state the goal. It's like, listen, we're married, I love you, and I want to make sure that I can be the best partner that I can for you right now. What is the best way for me to do that? What do you hope to accomplish? Paint the picture of the perfect evening. And so then when they say certain things, I say, oh, that's different from what I thought. <laughs> I'm glad yeah, we had sure. this conversation. And it's, it's a really simple way to do it. And I think honesty is the best policy. And the majority of times that when we're having these conversations, it's not because we want to take advantage of people. It's because we want the relationship to be as successful as possible. And if we're clear yeah. with that at the beginning, it makes whatever we say after that a lot more palatable. It really shows where the, the golden rule breaks down, right? To treat other people as you'd want to be treated. Maybe we don't have any idea how they want to be treated. And it's more important to find that out. Exactly. I mean, I, <laughs> here's, I'll use my, my relationship as an example. Um, if I'm not feeling well, or not, not physically, but if I am, um, you know, emotionally distraught, I want to be left alone. Because with my background of, in psychology, I, I have a process to dig deeply through it. I'm not trying to compartmentalize or stuff it down. I'm going to go through it in my own way. And when I talk to other people about it, it, tur it turns into complaining 
which puts me in a bad ne- mental state. Whitney, on the other hand, she wants me to talk to her about the about her emotions and her problems, and so she would want to be treated um, in a way that has the the conversation um, brought to the surface about emotions. For me. I want to be treated in a way that lets me just, you know, be by myself. And so if I treated Whitney in that way, she would feel as though I don't love her. And so in most situations, I think the golden rule applies, but oftentimes it, it, it doesn't. And when we miss that, um, we're not treating people in, in a way that shows them the respect that, that they want, uh, to out of the interaction. And it, it differs for different people. Um, it's, it's funny, uh, something I, I learned recently late in life, um, the, the easiest way when, I, when I'm thinking here and someone else is thinking here, let's use Andrea as an example, mm-hmm. my tendency is she'll say this, so I'll say this, you know, what, what I think. And she'll say, no, no, this, I'll say this. And, um, and I've finally learned that when she says this, I just have to say this again with a slight upturn in my voice to show that I'm interested and be sincere about it. So she, you know, when she says, we need to talk more. Instead of saying, no, we need to talk, let's go, oh, we need to talk more? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And, and, and actually um, build up some, uh, some empathy that, that actually does, it's not a fake until I make it. It just means actually really being an active listener rather than waiting for my turn to throw my part in. It, does that make sense? Would that be a, a, a Absolutely. valid? Yeah, and, and here's the thing, Johnny, when you're doing that, you're giving somebody something that they can't give to themselves. And that is, you're listening to them. I mean, yes, on a meta level, you can listen to yourself, but it, it doesn't have that same type of satisfaction when it comes from, when it, as, as it would as when it comes from somebody else. And so when you're listening to somebody, you are, you're solving a, a very, very important problem for them. They want to be heard. People want to be heard. And sometimes, as you gave with the example using your hands, sometimes even though they're saying that they're here, they're willing to come over here. They just want you to know, hey, for the record, I'm here, right? And so just, I want you to understand me. And, and that's really what empathy is. You don't need to agree with somebody in order to empathize with them. All you need to do is understand how they see, think, and feel and, ex- and express that understanding to them. And oftentimes that's what they need. You give them that emotional validation that they're looking for. So when, when you're teaching these skills to people, and I know you do it through your podcast, and I'm sure you do it through, through coaching, and I, I certainly watch your TED Talk where you, you, you present that to, to groups as well. Um, if you're sitting down with a person and, and you're trying to teach them these skills, um, and I guess there's a range. I mean, they're, they're, you know, these are things we should be learning in school, right? And it, it ties into emotional intelligence too. But, um, but when do you figure is a good time to start teaching people these things? Um, immediately. <laughs> like you said, I, I'm trying to teach this to my son who's four right now. And the thing is, I, I do this by asking him a lot of questions. Your most powerful persuasive tool at your disposal is, is asking questions. We need to be more curious. That's why my framework is called the compassionate curiosity framework, because we need to have that curiosity because that's going to guide us. It's going to give us more information. And at the same time, it's going to allow us to be more persuasive. So when it comes to training, if, if any of the listeners out there have children, I think it's, it starts now and you start to do that by example. That's the first thing. And then if I'm working with somebody one-on-one or, or doing one of my trainings, um, I try as much as possible to, to see what 
their unique struggle is because we're all created equally, but we're also created differently and different people are going to have different challenges. And so I want to figure out where they are currently and build a a strategy around that and personality upbringing. um, Those type of things are going to play a big role in, in where the greatest areas of opportunities are. Awesome. And I see a a question from Mike and that's a good cue for me to remind everyone that um, sort of the, the rest of the call will be questions from you guys as well. Certainly, I've got a million things I want to ask you, but I definitely want to get other people's in as well. So I'm going to ask Mary to unmute. I, I just want to mention when you said that about asking questions, one of my favorite human beings in the world is my nephew Talbot. And uh, it's funny, it's every single time you see him, he just, hey, Uncle Johnny, what did you do last week? Wow, that seems really interesting. What was your favorite part about that? And now he's learned that from one of my other favorite people, my brother. But I think what a great skill to teach a kid because we're all about the pursuit of attention generally. It's like, but here's what I did. Here's what I did. Here's what I did. And just the fact that he's more interested in finding out what I, what someone else did, he just want to tell that kid anything. It's just yeah. amazing. So I, I can definitely vouch for the the seductiveness of of someone who will ask you questions. It's it's very very appealing. Uh, speaking of appealing, I want to bring Ike in. Ike's got some questions for you. So I think you're on hey, mute, Ike. Hey, Kwame. Thanks so much for being on. Um, I actually earlier this year read um, Chris Voss's book, uh, Never Split the Difference, which is a, an awesome, interesting book on uh negotiation. I'm not sure if you've read that one, the former FBI negotiator. I'm sure you have. It's, it's pretty on point um, for what you do. Um, but I had two questions. One of them in the vein of what we're talking about in the transactional nature, I've certainly been in healthy and unhealthy relationships where negotiation very quickly turns the relationship transactional with scoreboarding and all sorts of other unhealthy behaviors. So are there early telltale signs of that and things to kind of figure out how to walk that fine line better? And then my second question is, I definitely suffer from having my kindness mistaken for weakness. And do you have tools around that? Absolutely. Perfect. Great questions. And um, yes. So the first one, how to make sure that the relationship doesn't become transactional. And I think what we need to do again, kind of going back to what I said about the expectations, uh, we need to be upfront with that. And we want to use a, a tool called framing. So framing is that storyline that we put over the conversation. It explains why it is we're having this conversation. What's, our goal here. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a preamble. And so earlier when I talked about the 70-30 rule, how I want to speak less, when it comes to the very beginning of a conversation, I really want to be the person who's, who's taking action right then. Really, really do. Because somebody might say, listen, we're coming to this conversation because your clients did X, Y, Z, that was wrong. It's in violation of this, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, well, this conversation sucks already. We haven't even started talking yet. Um, And so I want to be the person leading the dance in that regard. And so I'll say, listen, first of all, Attorney Smith, I really appreciate you taking the time to to have this conversation. I know our clients have had uh, their their problems in the past, but they've they've also had times when they've worked well together. And hopefully we can get to that point again. And I'm looking forward to working with you to try to find a solution. Now, it's the exact same conversation, the exact same issue, but the tone is very different. And the goal that I have with my framing is I want to be so incredibly positive and optimistic that they would look absurd <laughs> if they were to counter it. You know what, Kwame? I don't want to work for you, <laughs> work with you, and this will, this will be a horrible conversation. Nobody's going to say it, right? And so I think that's a really important way to make sure that the, the relationship doesn't become transactional. And when do we use framing? Before 
during and after the conversation. So before the conversation, just how I said, if I see the conversation start to get off track, then I reframe again and I say, Attorney Smith, again, I just want to reiterate why I'm here. My goal is to make sure blah, blah, blah. Again, positive, getting them back on track. And then after the conversation, I'm summarizing the, the contents of the conversation in an email or something like that. And I say, again, Attorney Smith, I just want to say it was a pleasure working with you. I think we can work together to, to, to move our clients in the right direction. And I think even though we didn't get a deal today, I think we're moving in the right direction ourselves. So I'm looking forward to the next conversation. And that's a very business oriented example. But then you t think about a, a conversation with your significant other. Instead of sending the ominous text, we need to talk. <laughs> you can say, listen, I love you. And I really appreciate this relationship. I realized that over the past couple of days, we haven't been on the same page. So I want to have a conversation to make sure we are. And then you bring that up during the conversation if it goes off off track. And then you send another text message afterwards. Just say, listen, I appreciate you. I know that wasn't easy, but thank you for working through this with me. And again, framing is the way that you can really make sure that the relationship doesn't get too transactional because you're constantly letting them know the reason why you're having the conversation. And then your second question, remind me again. Oh, yes, making sure that um, people don't uh, take your kindness for weakness. Yes. That's an important one. Um, and so I think one of the things that's important to do, again, with your framing, you have to be explicit with your goal during the conversation. That's the first thing. And then recognize that there, there are parts in the conversation that are a little bit more important than others. And so when um, last fall, Harvard uh, Business Review came out with this article that said, being nice in negotiations can backfire. And um, the negotiation nerds all around the world were all up in arms. <laughs> like, what does this mean? And so really what they found is that when it comes to the more transactional portion of a negotiation, you need to be a little bit more firm, a little bit more direct. Then at the beginning of the conversation, it's great to be nice and friendly because you're building rapport, you're opening them up, you're helping people to be more creative. And so I like to break the negotiation into two parts, the value creation part, where we're trying to expand the pie, and then the value claiming part, where we're dividing the pie. Okay, together, we've, we've seen the problem together, we've come up with creative solutions, and so now there's more value on the table. Now, we need to figure out who gets what and how much. Now at that point, now it'll be a little bit more helpful to you for you to not smile as much, to, for you to be a little bit more serious, to lower the tone of your voice and slow down so you sound a little bit more imposing. Because this really has an impact on people psychologically because it's not just about the way that you handle yourself in negotiations strategically, what it is that you do and you say, but it's also the impact that the, your approach has on other people. So if I'm friendly Kwame talking about Cinnamon Toast Crunch on the TEDx stage, <laughs> you know, people are a lot more willing to push harder. But then if once we get more to that transactional stage, it's like, oh, Kwame's in business mode. That makes people realize, you know what? I probably, if I pushed hard, harder now, I probably wouldn't get as much. So strategically, it, it changes the way that you handle yourself, but also changes the way that other people see, see you in the conversation. And if they see you differently, they're going to approach it differently. And hopefully when it comes to the value claiming, they're not pushing as hard and your approach changes and has an impact on them because of that.
So I'm going to actually uh, ask a, a follow-up on that one. Um, this is the first time you kind of talked about the va value claiming portion, and you gave some examples of language in sort of family situations and business situations of that, that beginning and framing of the conversation. Could you kind of expand in the same way on the value claiming part? Yeah, as it relates to the um, to the, the, our personal negotiations or on the business side. Too. I'd love to hear both. Okay, yeah. So you need to, when it comes to the personal side, let's touch on this one first. You need to be very careful with the way that you do it. Um, I have been accused of sounding too lawyerly <laughs> in my relationship. That doesn't do very good. It doesn't put me in a good position, right? And so you need to soften your approach, but still you need to be assertive. And when you're assertive, you, you, what you're doing is you're just advocating for what it is that you want out of the situation. And I think people feel as though they need to turn into this incredibly articulate trial lawyer um, and, and make their case. But really, when it comes to being assertiveness, one of the e being assertive, one of the easiest ways to do this is by simply not adjusting your position while still being curious. And so I remember one time I was having a conversation with one of my students. Um, I, I teach at the MBA program in Otterbein University and at Ohio State's Law School. And one of my students said, uh, Professor Christian, I am terrified about this mock negotiation coming up. She was a senior in undergrad who was leveling up to this MBA level course. And then this guy that she was going up against who had 20 years in industry who was coming back for his MBA. So there was a little bit of a discrepancy <laughs> there. And so she says, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm just going to get steamrolled. So I said, all right, here is the goal for you. Forget everything else. Your goal is to have a, a strong anchor at the beginning, and then you cannot adjust your position for 45 minutes. You look at the clock and you can't change your position for 45 minutes, but at that whole time, you maintain a really good relationship and you ask a lot of questions. You just ask as many questions as you can. And an amazing thing happens when you simply don't adjust, people, <laughs> people adjust, they, they become a little bit more flexible oh, it seems like Marion really believes in this. You think about our, our kids, right? Um, your son, who is incredibly tall now. I see the pictures. That's insane. I don't know what you're feeding him. <laughs> but um, think about it. When our, our kids ask us for something, we can say no. Then they keep asking. And then 13 minutes later, fine, just take it. It's, it's a persistence type of thing that I think we lose a lot of times in adulthood. And so if it's something that you really care about, you can still demonstrate that you care about the relationship while still being assertive and showing that you care about this particular thing by being curious, but just not adjusting. If you don't, negotiation doesn't require you to adjust your position. And I think that's one of those things that people often think, well, they came up with an offer, I came up with an offer, back and forth. Sometimes it does go that way but not all the time. And so you need to make that assessment to make sure it, it works for you. And this is something you could use at home and in your business negotiations too. Just stand your ground and only adjust if you need to. If there's new information, that's when you adjust. Everything else is just them trying to persuade you. That's such a, such a great explanation. Thank you. That was, yeah, that, yeah. And, and, and that rolls uh, perfectly into the question I was going to ask. So I'm glad, I'm glad Marion jumped in there because it, <laughs> it segued nicely into, um, so now we're getting really into skills, you know, and the idea about, um, about being able to maintain curiosity while holding your position, uh, recognizing when to change your tone of voice, when to speak faster, when to speak slower. So like you say, you need to recognize when you're, when you're in a negotiation, but most people, um, 
they, they haven't learned these skills in any kind of a formal setting. So now they're out doing it just in the world. So what advice would you give to somebody who's listening to all this, writing all this down, saying this stuff is great, mm-hmm. and then tomorrow morning they're in a negotiation, they, it all goes out the window. Like, you know, should, they, should they be writing this on the inside of their arm so they can look down? Like, how would you, re- <laughs> how would you recommend that people sort of internalize these ideas so they can draw on them? Yeah, so this is, this is great. So you need to practice. So this is how you practice, okay? So let's go back to the framework I talked about, which is the compassionate curiosity framework. Step one, acknowledge and validate emotions. Step two, get curious with compassion. And step three, with joint problem solving, this is just trying to work out a problem with the other person. So acknowledge emotions, get curious with compassion and joint problem solving. And so this is a framework you can use in every single conversation that you have low level, high level, at home, at work. It's something that you can do at all times. And you want to, again, treat it like a habit. So as soon as I have a conversation, my goal is to use this framework reflexively. And so you can start doing this with every interaction that you're having. It makes it more likely that it'll be your natural response when the time comes. That's the first thing. So you want to start to generate the habit. The second thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that after you're having the conversations, you're treating yourself as the player and the coach. And what I mean by that is a good coach doesn't say, hey, team. All right, go out and play this game. We have a game on Wednesday. Then Wednesday comes, you play the game. Then they say, hey, we have a game next Wednesday. (laughs) That's it. No, that's not how it works. They say, all right, we played the game. Let's review the tape. What did we do well? What didn't we do so well? What would we change if we could go back and do it again? And what does this mean for us for our uh, our next competition? You want to do this for yourself at the end of every negotiation, every difficult conversation. What did I do well? Okay, I want to do more of that. What didn't I do well? Okay, I don't want to do that <laughs> anymore. And so you're constantly analyzing these everyday interactions, and then it makes, you, it makes it more likely for you to be successful. And if you have a good enough relationship with somebody, you can ask for feedback. I do this with Whitney. I, I remember there was a, a point after I, I wrote the book, I said, you know, how am I still having... <laughs> struggling in these conversations. How about I take my own advice? And I started asking for feedback after some of our difficult conversations. How did you feel? How did this make you feel? What could I do better next time? And as you start to get feedback from these different areas, from your own self-analysis and from the people you talk to, you're going to start to develop your own negotiation style. And that's really when it becomes powerful for you. I I really appreciate that. And and the idea about... um recognizing what you did well and what you didn't do well even if you get what you think you wanted um and and that's certainly been something for me um where where i pride myself on being a articulate and persuasive communicator which is not always a good thing from a negotiation standpoint in that i go into it with the objective that i'm going to be an articulate and persuasive negotiator or sorry communicator and that is how i'm going to get what i want and then i find out later on that i missed so many opportunities to build relationships to help somebody get what they wanted along the way maybe get even more of what I wanted if I'd only recognize that, um, that if I just listen and ask the right questions. So, um, so I think that's super valid that even when you think you've been successful to stop and look and say, was I, was I still as powerful as I could have been? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I love sports analogies. So think about um, somebody who's just started watching Steph Curry and then they, they say, you know what, I'm going to start pulling up from half court and taking these long range three pointers. And the first time they do it, it, it goes in. 
what is a coach can't say, hey, good shot. <laughs> you have to say, well, don't do that again. You got lucky. And the same thing happens with us in our difficult conversations. Sometimes we succeed in spite of our performance. And we have to recognize that. We have to come yeah. to terms with the fact that we can still make a lot of mistakes and still succeed. That doesn't mean that those mistakes were the reason why we were successful. And so that's a, it's a really powerful point. And then also to the, the belief that you have to be articulate. I think that's one of the, the most alluring traps of negotiation because it makes you feel as though you have to talk more than you really need to. One of my mentors, actually the, the man who taught me how to negotiate, um, he has a stutter. And so he struggled in, with speaking in public and now he's a professor, but because of his stutter, he speaks very slowly. And he, he jokes about it all the time. You know, I'm not the, I'm not the most articulate person in the world, but he's effective. You know, and so you have to figure out what works for you. And um, yeah, you don't, a lot of people say I'm not very articulate. I said, well, that, it's, that doesn't matter to me. <laughs> that doesn't matter. You can still be successful. So something you've uh, referenced a few times, and it was difficult conversations. And when I think about the dynamic of that in most people's lives, those are the ones they don't have because inherently they're difficult. So generally, those are going to be the most important conversations as well. And, uh, and the fact that they're difficult and they avoid them, how would you coach somebody on having the confidence to lean into those difficult conversations? And I'm actually going to throw it out to the, the, the other people on the call that you may have something specific that you want to get some coaching on here. So I'm going to ask it in a general sense, but then feel free to put up that little blue hand uh, if you know how to do that, or just uh, put into the, uh, the, the comment section. If somebody's been avoiding a conversation like the plague, I shouldn't use that term right now. If they've been avoiding that conversation, uh, how do they get up the strength to have it in the first place? I think the easiest way to do it is to shift from the fear of failure to the fear of regret. And so a lot of times we struggle because we say to ourselves, what is the worst thing that could happen? I could lose my job. I could lose this relationship. I can lose, lose, lose. That's always what we're focusing on. And so because we start to develop that scarcity mindset of we want to cling on to what we already have, even if what we already have is not that great. Because if we're having a conversation that's a difficult one, that, that, signal, that is a, a signal that there's something amiss, right? Something could be better. And so that's the first thing. Shift from the fear of failure to the fear of regret. And so I think of it in terms of like a, a deathbed, deathbed perspective. If I were to look back on my life and I don't have this conversation, what would the deathbed version of Kwame think about that? Would I look back and respect the man that I am today? because I decided not to have the conversation. And that's, to me, the worst feeling. I can't go back in time and, and right those wrongs. And we often regret the things that we didn't do more so than the things that we did. And so regret to me seems like a more painful prospect. And so I'm willing to, to take that risk because of that. The other thing is you have to find the opportunity. This is an opportunity-based framework. And so when you think about conflict, you have to think about it in terms of opportunity, because in, just from an evolutionary psychology perspective, we're always considering whether I should approach or avoid a situation. All animals do this, approach or avoid. And so if you are oriented towards avoid, that means you're seeing this as a threat. And so you're going to either completely avoid the conversation, or if you do engage, you're not going to engage wholeheartedly. 
which is problematic because then you're not going to be as confident and they can hear it going back to what we talked about earlier and it'll cause the other person to push harder like oh johnny's not serious <laughs> i can push yeah. him on this and so seeing the opportunity behind the conversation is going to be critical it's an opportunity to learn it's an opportunity to improve the relationship it's an opportunity to improve my career and, and if you think hard enough and creatively enough, you'll see the opportunity and focus on that and it'll make you more likely to have the conversation. Would, would you ever recommend, so suppose it's um, a conversation with um, a friend that you just don't wanna have and, and the reason is you're, you're afraid of hurting that friend or whatever else, um, actually putting that out there, like, um, like saying, hey, here's why I'm afraid to have this conversation. Like actually just get, get that thing that you're so afraid of on the table so that you're not afraid of it anymore. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And I think it would depend on the situation. Um, if it's something that is somewhat trivial, where you're pretty sure, hey, the relationship's going to go on, um, then yeah, we can have, I would go ahead and say that. I, I don't think there's any problem in that. Because again, people are good at seeing emotion and reading that in body language, but we're not great at interpreting exactly what it is. Uh, I think that's one of the, the biggest myths about body language. We can just see whether somebody likes something or dislikes something but we can't read much deeper than that. And yeah. so they might see that negativity in you and misread it as something completely like something way worse. And that could be more problematic. And so it, it, it's oftentimes beneficial to do that. But then there's the other thing that you should consider. Not all relationships are meant to be had. I think we can all look back in our lives and say, yeah, I, I'm glad I got rid of that relationship. In fact, I should have gotten rid of it sooner. And so conflict is not just a tool of improving relationships and getting what you want, but it's also a tool that reveals the truth about the true nature of the relationships. And you can use that as an information gathering tool to learn whether or not this is a relationship that is beneficial for you to have. And sometimes that fear of losing the relationship is actually the exact reason you should move towards it because maybe that's the proper outcome. And so yeah. I think a lot of times we're just afraid of understanding what the truth is. And it's the, the old saying, the devil you know. You'd rather just stay in the status quo because it's familiar. But the problem with humans is that emotionally, sometimes we mix up familiarity and safety. Familiarity yeah. feels good, but it is not always safe. And it's interesting that that has brought up um, another idea that there, are, there may be another outcome that is beneficial and good that you're not even point like where people say we have to have this conversation to fix our relationship to stay together forever and i'm talking about in a personal one or in a business one where maybe having the conversation honestly openly um generously you find out that actually the outcome we should have is to not work together or not be together but but we can actually find opportunities and and lead to the positive result for everyone Exactly. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I've, I've heard people say sometimes letting go of a bad opportunity is the precise thing you need to find the right opportunity. Yeah. Right. And so my thing is, I want to have as much control over my life as possible. And the best way to get control is by getting answers, getting information. And again, conflict and negotiation is one of the most powerful tools at your disposal when it comes to learning things about the relationship and about the situation. Because I think living in this information age has had a detrimental impact on our curiosity. Because for the majority of things, we can find it on Google. We can find the answers that we need. Yeah. But then when it comes to these critical relationships, I can't Google how Whitney's feeling. <laughs> 
<laughs> sure. That, that, that doesn't work. But I need to have the conversation to find that information. But sometimes the fear prevents us from taking the step to, to investigate and pull that out. And so, but if we do, then we can make a, a more thorough analysis of what puts us in the best position. And again, I, our motto at the American Negotiation Institute is that the, the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And the quicker you become comfortable with that reality, the, the better positioned you are to live the best version of your life because you're going to be willing to engage and put yourself in a position for success through these conversations. So being somebody, I, I, I love that point. And, and it makes me think about being somebody who teaches negotiation and surround yourself with like-minded people and, and build a community of strong negotiators. I think most people who aren't a strong negotiator, they fear being in a conversation with a good negotiator because they're going to be out negotiated. I'm assuming that you're now in a position where when you're talking to someone who's also a good negotiator, like, oh, thank goodness, we speak the same language here. Is that, is that true that once you're a good negotiator, you're, you're happy to be speaking with good negotiators? Yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, then I know that I'm going to get a lot of information and they're going to have a lot of information. I think it puts me in a better position to make a good decision. Um, because a lot of times if you're negotiating out of fear, then you're not willing to share that information. And you might be negotiating out of fear because of your position or very likely you might be negotiating out of fear because you're not comfortable and confident in your skills. And so a, a good negotiator is going to have a better idea of what they can tell me and what they can't tell me, which will make it more likely for them to tell me what they can tell me <laughs> because they're confident sure. in themselves. And so, yeah, it, it'll be a lot more difficult when it comes to the, uh, to the value claiming part of the conversation. But I think, again, when it comes down to uh, being assertive and being persistent, as long as you are, are willing to do what it takes to, to succeed, then, then it's not that scary. I, I think you think about it in terms of um, jujitsu. I love watching MMA, uh, but I have never been in a fight in my yeah. life. Thank goodness. Exactly. Let's diffuse the situation, yeah. right? Um, what fighters often say is that they are afraid of sparring with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. They'd rather yeah. spar with somebody who is well trained because that's how people get hurt when they don't yeah. know how to fight. And it's the same thing with with negotiation conflict too. So we haven't talked specifically and directly about the current situation with the pandemic and everyone being at home and being in a different situation. We've talked about it indirectly because we've talked a lot about relationship conversations and there's a lot of those going on right now in a different environment than they normally would. So I appreciate that a lot. Um, but in terms of the, the, the bigger picture of where people are at right now, you know, there are some people who are working harder than ever, but under weird circumstances. You know, the person who has to do their whole job they've always done, but they're now at home with kids underfoot. Or the person who's going out to work um, front lines and, um, and is doing it under far harder conditions than they ever have. Or somebody who just lost their job and, um, and now they're going to have to go out for the first time in 30 years and, and start looking for work again. Um, in terms of the advice that you would have for, for people in various permutations of what's going on right now, how, how have you had to advise people and counsel people in, in, in your practice recently? Yeah, the biggest thing is perspective and space. Um, when you're in that situation where you're around people and you're presented with these difficult conversations and your, your job situation is, is very stressful, no matter which um, profession you're in, there's some increased level of stress, even if it just comes from uncertainty. Um, 
it's going to be tough. And the first thing you need to do is think. And when you're not when you're in an emotionally stressed out situation where you when your amygdala is firing with because of the stress that you're under you're not going to respond you're going to react and you're going to react like the animal we all are <laughs> and just you know it's going to be fight flight freeze it, whatever it is it's not going to be it's not going to be appropriate and it's not going to be helpful and so the first thing you need to do is get some space you need to have a negotiation to get space what is your space. And so that might be a physical space. Hey, if I'm in the car, I'm going to take 15 minutes and just sit in my car while it's off. I just need to be alone for a little bit. If you don't have a car, you live in a big city and maybe a small apartment, maybe it's the bathroom. Listen, I'm not afraid to admit the fact that I have <laughs> hid in the bathroom while my four-year-old is saying, daddy, where are you? Like, I just need some peace. You know, you need time to think and you need space to do that. And however you need to get that space, get it. And sometimes, again, it takes a conversation. What are your boundaries? And when are you in work mode? When are you in partner mode? When are you in parent mode? And getting clear about those roles is going to be really important for your mindset because I know one of my struggles is I'm, I'm trying to be everything, but sometimes being good at one thing means I'm bad at another thing. Me being a great dad doesn't necessarily improve my business. You know, those are different demands. And so if I can get clear with my roles to myself at what time, in what location, in what circumstance am I playing what role, then it helps me to be clearer to the people that I'm talking to about what roles I can ask for and what space I, I need at what time. So I think that's the first part because a lot of times we're just not in the right mental space to have these difficult conversations at a high level because we're going to be quicker to be triggered. And when we're triggered, we're not at our best. Yeah, I appreciate that. And when you mentioned about being triggered too, um, it's so funny when, when we have a conversation, we get triggered and it blows up and it doesn't work. And then we go back the next time and we get triggered the same spot, the same person, we have the same outcome, as opposed to recognizing that when I have this conversation, I'm probably going to get triggered at that point. I know that's going to happen. So why don't I diffuse that now ahead of time instead of just blindly, you know, insanity doing the same thing again and again and again, expecting a different result. Exactly. Yeah. We have to recognize our patterns of conflict and we have to try to see ahead of time what conflicts could eventually happen. Because I, I like to pre-negotiate situations. If I find it likely that a certain thing is going to happen, let's have this conversation now while we are sane <laughs> before it actually happens and we're not thinking very clearly. And so I, I think about it in terms of with, with Whitney, I might say, listen, hey, um, down the road, you might later today, there was a, going to be a time where I'm on the phone and you're on the phone. That means Kai is running wild. We could want him to try to actually do an assignment. Most likely he will get bored after seven minutes and want, run to one of us. So does that mean we put him on screen time during that time? Let's have that conversation now. So we're not having to have that conversation at a time where we can't dedicate uh, enough mental space for that conversation. So pre-negotiation is going to be important. I had a guest on the show uh, uh, in February, uh, Jen Goldman. She has a book called Freeing Yourself from Conflict. And she talks about sometimes you find yourself in patterns of conflict that keep on happening over and over and over again. And sometimes what you need to do is change the pattern figure out a new solution. And so just like you said, Johnny, you recognize you're going to be triggered at a specific point. Okay. Again, re let's reverse engineer it. Let's go back. What did I do? Well, what didn't I do? Well, what would I do differently? 
let's think about those patterns and try to tweak it because again like you said going doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result is insanity and the thing is when we have those conflict patterns we feel like this is the right way to do it because it's worked with other people in the past well this isn't them (laughs) this is somebody else in a different situation uh something has happened that i knew would happen this hour has whipped by like that (laughs) that's crazy it's been an hour it's fantastic so i i want to uh thank you but i do that in a minute first of all i want to ask if people want to stay in touch with you, which they do, um, so there's your book. Uh, so tell, tell us again the full title of the book, uh, where they can get it, uh, where they can go to sign up for newsletters, things like that, and how they can stay in touch with your teaching. Thank you. Yeah, so the book is called Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict. It's about my journey from being um, a people pleaser to a confident negotiator and um, introducing a very simple framework for you to have difficult conversations. Um, The podcast, Negotiate Anything, um, top negotiation podcast in the world, and connect with me on LinkedIn. I do um, negotiation trainings and coaching um, now virtually. (laughs) as well as in person but yeah connecting with me on linkedin that's the best way to do it well the other thing i'm taking away from this call is it's hard to believe that i've never bothered to really use linkedin my 21 year old daughter has been haranguing me for that for a while (laughs) between between katie and you my project this afternoon is going to go and tweak my linkedin and and actually and actually remember what my sign in is for it so you'll be you'll be the first person i had (laughs) i appreciate it thank you (laughs) hey kwame thank you so much man i really really appreciate this Uh, It's been fantastic. Thank you, everyone who keeps going back to these calls. Um, It's really great to have this community. Thanks for listening to this recording of our daily Spartan Up podcast Zoom chats. The hosts on this show are Johnny Waite, Sephra Alexandra, Colonel Tim Nye, myself, the producer, Marion Abrams, and of course, Joe DeSena, the founder and CEO of Spartan. To get the schedule for upcoming guests and sessions on our Zoom chats and other podcast episodes, follow us on Instagram at SpartanUpPodcast or on Twitter at SpartanUpPod. And I hope you'll subscribe on YouTube or whatever podcast app you use so you get notifications of all of our shows. Our weekly interview show with Joe DeSena, our tip series with Spartan's chief mind doc, Dr. Lara Pence, our Zoom chat episodes like this one, our new Spartan combat series, and other tips and motivation to help you stay resilient in mind, body, and spirit. See you next week. This episode of Spartan Up is brought to you by Wine for Runners, the makers of the new official Spartan brand wine. Visit wineforrunners.com slash Spartan. That's wine, the number four, runners.com slash Spartan.